Chapter 13 For the remainder of that day, and for the two or three days that followed, though Frances and her mother were regularly bothered by reporters, there was no further sign of police activity on the streets around Champion Hill. No more going through the gutters, no more knocking on residents' doors. The cinder lane was reopened. Frances screwed up her courage and went down the garden to look at it, but there was nothing to be seen. She couldn't even, with any certainty, pick out the spot where she and Lillian had dropped Leonard's body. That part of the affair had been so densely dark, so urgent and improbable, that it had begun to seem like something from a dream, just like one of those violent acts she'd sometimes committed in her dreams, then marveled at on, then marveled at on waking. On Tuesday morning, Vera came to put together a suitcase of Lillian's things. Frances went up to the bedroom with her, desperate to make the most of the link with Walworth, wanting to know or to gauge how Lillian was coping. Vera said that she was feeling stronger, was eating and sleeping better. Inspector Kemp had called to see her again the previous night. He saw her again, asked Frances. What did he want? Vera didn't know. Just more questions, like the others. Anyhow, he hadn't stayed long. But some pressmen had called, too, and they had been more of a nuisance. Had Miss Ray read today's papers? They were full of the murder. It was awful. Lou had taken one look at them and burst into tears. Frances had seen only that morning's times, which she thought was unsettling enough. The original inaccurate mention expanded now into an account of the opening and adjourning of the inquest, and Lillian's trembling attendance at it. So when Vera left, she went with her as far as a newsstand on the hill. She bought every paper she could afford. The mirror, the mail, the sketch, the express, the local papers, too. Lillian's image, she saw, unnerved, was on all the pictorials. She tucked the bundle under her arm, feeling squeamish about looking at them there, on the street. She didn't want her mother to see them, either. Once she was back at the house, she took them straight up to her bedroom and spread them out on the floor. She recalled the man with the camera. The picture showed Lillian leaving the inquest, leaning on her sister's arm, nervously lowering her head. They were grainy and unsubtle, mere approximations, really, but all the same, they had captured something of Lillian. They had got the life and solidity of her, and it was incredible, dizzying, mad, to think of the masses of people who, just that morning, must have studied her face over their breakfast eggs and on their trains and buses, who must be gazing at her right now. The Daily Mirror carried a second picture. Perhaps it had been lent, along with that portrait of Leonard, by helpful Uncle Ted. It showed Lillian and Leonard in what might have been someone's back garden. Leonard had an arm around Lillian's waist. Her hip was tight against his. They looked like any young couple of the clerk class, smiling into the future in Hammersmith or Forest Hill. The caption read, Mr. and Mrs. Barber, before the tragedy. The tone was the same as the other papers. There was no suggestion anywhere that the marriage had been anything other than happy. There was nothing but sympathy for Lillian, the pitiful young widow, the pathetic wife. The accounts of the inquest stressed her bravery, her emotion, and her looks. There were careful, approving descriptions of her costume. The murder was condemned as the work of a brute who would soon be apprehended, and the police were said to be pursuing several lines of inquiry, one of which was that theory already reported by Charlie that Leonard's killer might have marked him out in the city and followed him home. Inspector Kemp was inviting members of the public to come forward if they'd noticed any suspicious behavior on the streets of Blackfriars or Champion Hill on the fateful night. On the fatal night. Going from article to article, from picture to picture, Frances felt as if something that had, until now, been secure in her hand had dropped, had shattered, had burst into a thousand flying pieces. Then again, well, 
Wasn't it all just what she and Lillian could have hoped for? Charlie's lie, whatever was behind it, had been enough to give the police their pointer. It didn't matter which direction they went in now, so long as it took them away from the house. And for how long would the case attract this sort of interest? Another day or two? A week, at most? Soon, surely, it would become clear that the lines of inquiry were so many dead ends that Inspector Kemp, for all his confidence, had failed to deliver his man, and the newspapers would look elsewhere. Some more sensational story would be bound to come along. It's just a question, she told herself, of doggedly sitting it out. But she looked again at those grainy front-page phantoms, more unsettled than ever to think of all the stranger's gazes to which they had been exposed. Finally, she tore the pictures free, screwed them into a ball, took them down to the kitchen, and stuffed them into the stove. Then the neighbors began to call. They had bought the papers too, or had been shown them, they claimed, by their cooks and parlor mates, and wanted to discuss the latest developments. Mrs. Dawson had heard that Mrs. Barber had suffered some sort of seizure at the inquest. Was that true? The elder Miss Desborough, from the house next door, understood that a second murder had now been committed, but that the police were keeping the matter quiet for some reason of their own. Mr. Lamb and Margaret, on the other hand, had been told on good authority that the police were poised to make an arrest. Nope, there was absolutely no doubt about it. The man was local, a shopkeeper or trader. He had taken against Mr. Barber because of an unpaid bill. And next came Mrs. Playfair. She had just at that moment returned from Sussex, having cut short her holiday on the Ray's behalf. I simply can't believe it, she said, as Francis let her into the house. Francis answered thinly, Yes, everyone's saying that. I opened the times and actually yelled, You look ill, Francis. I'm worn out, that's all. The last few days have seemed endless. Oh, why wasn't I here? I could have done so much. But tell me, how's your mother? For answer, Francis led the way into the drawing room. Her mother had heard Mrs. Playfair's voice. Now, at the sight of her, she seemed close to tears. Mrs. Playfair stepped quickly to her and took hold of her hands. What an ordeal, Emily. You look worse even than Francis. I don't wonder at it. We thought all our horrors were behind us, didn't we? Francis's mother nodded, unable to speak. But as she wiped her eyes and put away her handkerchief, some of the tension went out of her. It's such a great relief to see you, Jane. You ought to have telegraphed to me at once. I've hardly known what I've been doing. Francis has taken care of most of it, but I don't know. It isn't like an ordinary death or an illness at all. Mrs. Playfair sat down and began to tug off her gloves. Well, I want to hear everything that's happened, every little last thing. Frances sat down, too. The prospect of going through it all over again made her feel boneless with exhaustion. At the same time, she realized that here was an opportunity to tell the story of the murder as the police had begun to construct it, to fix it more firmly in her mind. So, with her mother now and then putting in some detail of her own, she gave a careful, thorough account of the events of the last past few days, beginning with Constable Hardy's arrival at the house on Saturday morning and finishing with the inquest. Mrs. Playfair looked shocked, appalled, but also unmistakably excited. As soon as she'd heard Francis out, she narrowed her eyes. Now, who's the coroner at the moment? Is it still Edward Sampson? I know him a little. He used to be friendly with George. I might pay him a call to do some digging. What do you think? Oh, I wish you would, said Francis's mother. If he knows anything at all that the police aren't saying, I'd so like to hear it. 
It's the senselessness of the thing that I find so horrible. The blindness, the waste. Poor, poor Mr. Barber. He was such a cheerful young man, so very full of life. Can you really believe, as Inspector Kemp seems to think, that someone set out purposely to kill him? Someone with some sort of a grudge against him? Well, no, Mrs. Playfair answered. I'm not sure I do believe it. There seems no evidence, for one thing. The attacker was clearly one of these louts one sees hang about on the street corners. I wonder the inspector doesn't simply round them all up and question them one by one. That's what I would do. She went on like this, laying down certainty after certainty, and sounded oddly in her confidence, like the inspector himself, so that Frances, listening to her, began to feel a return of the mild elation she had felt on Sunday while listening to him. For the street corner lout, the man with the grudge, Whoever the culprit was meant to be, what did it matter? So long, she thought again, as no one was thinking of Lillian and her. So long as no one was imagining that they had ever made that journey down the stairs and over the garden with Leonard's body. She remembered leaving him in the darkness. She remembered closing the door on him. And then another thought came, came like a whisper behind the hand. He's gone. Lillian was free now. If they could just hang on to their courage, just until everything died down. She chased the thought away, but the touch of elation remained. She put back her head and closed her eyes while Mrs. Playfair laid her plans. After tea that day, however, Mrs. Playfair returned, and this time she looked uncharacteristically subdued. Yes, she said, she had spoken to Mr. Sampson. He had been quite willing to talk in confidence about the case. She had also had two or three conversations with her parlor maid, Patty. With Patty? repeated Frances. Patty's sister's girl over at Brixton is engaged to be married. The boy's a constable in the police, and he's let one or two things slip. Frances couldn't believe it. You sound like Mr. Lamb. According to him, Leonard was killed by a disgruntled local grocer. Mother and I will be next on the list at that rate. Frances, protested her mother tiredly. Well, Mrs. Playfair went on, this boy's meant to be the horse's mouth. Patty speaks very highly of him. And the fact is, both he and Mr. Sampson. She paused, strangely awkward. It caught me quite by surprise, I can tell you. But they both gave me more or less the same impression. They both hinted pretty plainly that, well, that there's something not quite right about the case. Frances looked at her. What do you mean, not quite right? Mrs. Playfair paused again. She seemed to be carefully choosing her words. Well, for one thing, Mr. Barber is supposed to have spent Friday evening with his friend, Mr. What, what's his name? Wismuth. Mr. Wismuth, yes. They're supposed to have gone from one public house to another, getting drunk as lords on the way. But the police have been to every public house in this city, showing photographs of the two men, and no publican or barmaid has any recollection of them. What's more, the police surgeon, Mr. Palmer, tested Mr. Bar Barber's body for alcohol when he carried out his postmortem. He found very little trace of it, apparently, less than the equivalent of half a glass of beer. Looks odd, don't you think? It took Francis a moment to answer. Well, it sounds to me as though Mr. Wismuth was the drunker, that's all. Yes, perhaps, said Mrs. Playfair, but here's the queerest part. It seems now that a man and a girl have come forward to say that they heard some sort of disturbance in the lane on Friday night, and... Frances felt the words as an almost physical shock. She began to blush, a horrible feeling, nothing at all like simple embarrassment, more a scalding of her cheeks, as if she had boiling water flung at them. Mrs. Playfair, seeing her reaction and misunderstanding it, said, 
Yes, isn't that a ghastly thought? The girl is in service at one of the houses further down the hill. She slipped out with the family's knowledge. Without the family's knowledge, a naughty girl, obviously. But still, it's enough to give one nightmares. She didn't see anything, I believe. Evidently, it was too dark for that. And, it was too, and she was too far off. Down where the Hilliard's wall juts out. But she and the man both say they heard footsteps and sighs. The man made light of it at the time, said it must be another pair of sweethearts. Then, of course, when they heard about the murder. It took them until last night to make up their minds to talk to the police. The girl was frightened for her place. The man didn't want to come forward on his own for fear of making himself a suspect. But the point is, you see, the point is, it was quite early in the evening when they were out in the lane, not later than half past nine. Well, according to Mr. Wismuth, he and Mr. Barber were still in the city then. <clears throat> the blood was roaring through Francis's ears. <clears throat> so I think that when she and Lillian had gone staggering out into the darkness, that when she was going over Leonard's body, trying to pull his clothes straight, to think that all that time, less than 50 yards away, there had been this couple, this sinister, spooning couple. They must be mistaken, she said, trying to will the heat and color from her face. Whatever they heard, probably it was another couple. I've seen couples in the lane myself, countless times. Or else they imagine the whole thing, or are telling stories for the thrill of it. It's certainly possible, said Mrs. Playfair, with a doubtful air. But the police seem to be taking them seriously all the same. They've cut the detail out of the papers for now. And they're, well, they're keeping a close eye on Mr. Wismuth, I can tell you that. Now Francis couldn't answer. Miss Desborough had spoken yesterday of things being kept out of the papers, and she hadn't believed it. But if the police were really were doing devious things like that, if they were plotting and watchful like that, and if they really suspected Charlie... Her mother had begun to fidget about in her chair. Oh, but this is awful. Surely no one's imagining that Mr. Wismuth had anything to do with Mr. Barber's death. Mr. Wismuth, who's always so pleasant. The two of them were just such great friends. Didn't they go through the war together? No, I can't believe it. Well, said Mrs. Playfair, someone killed Mr. Barber. And you have to allow. It does look very much as though Mr. Wismuth has something to conceal. But why would he do such a thing? What did the inspector tell Francis? That the murderer might have wanted to get Mr. Barber out of his way? Yes, but why? Well, I hate to play drawing room detective, but again, Mrs. Playfair seemed to be carefully choosing her words. Just think about it for a moment. On the one hand, you have Mr. Wismuth spending a great deal of his time with Mr. Barber and his wife. On the, on the other, well, there's the wife herself. My dear, she's an awfully attractive woman of a very particular sort. Haven't you told me more than once that the couple didn't get along? Frances felt rather than saw her mother's horrified gaze. She couldn't bring herself to return it. Was this what the police were thinking? Had they been thinking it all along? She began to recall moments from her interview with Inspector Kemp, odd questions that he had asked about Lillian, about Charlie. She turned to Mrs. Playfair. Did you mention that Mr. Samson did you men- did you mention that to Mr. Samson or to Patty about Lillian and Leonard not getting along? Her tone made Mrs. Playfair blink. I don't recall. She sat still for a second, then got to her feet. Oh, this is nonsense. This is rubbish. What is it exactly that Lillian's supposed to have done? She was here all Friday night with me. Mrs. Playfair gazed up at her, startled. No one's accusing Mrs. Barber of anything. I dare say she's innocent of the whole affair. Oh, you dare say? Well, yes. Yes, I do. But isn't it possible that Mr. Wismuth has been harboring some passion? 
I know that Mrs. Barber is a sort of friend of yours, Francis, but, well, let's not be unworldly. Men don't kill each other, kill each other for no reason. Don't they? It seems to me that men do that all the time. We've just come out of a war in which they, they did nothing else. Eric and Noel and John Arthur, what were they killed for but for nonsense, for lies? And who protested against that? Not you and my mother. And now a single man has lost his life and everyone's sleeping to these ludicrous conclusions. Mrs. Playfair looked amazed. Good heavens, Francis. This isn't an Edgar Wallace story. If we've to listen to policemen swank, the servants gossip. She was shaking and couldn't go on. Her mother said, Francis, please, sit down. But she felt that if she sat, she would only have to spring back up again. She stepped closer to the hearth, put out a steadying hand to the mantelpiece. After an uncomfortable silence, Mrs. Playfair gave a bird-like twitch of her chin and her shoulder. Well, naturally, I understand that you're upset. This is a desperate thing for anyone concerned. But, as you say, a man's life has been lost. That didn't happen by itself. I don't see what the war has to do with it at all. Well, no, that isn't true. Her tone had sharpened. I see what the war has to do with it, and so I imagine does your mother. The war took all our best men. It isn't considered correct to say so, but I shall say it anyhow. The war took all our best men, and with them went everything that's decent and lawful, and she leaned forward in her chair. A murder, Francis, on Champion Hill. Would that have happened ten years ago? Again, Frances couldn't answer. She stood with her hand at the mantelpiece still, not wanting to surrender the feel of the cool, hard marble shelf. Looking into the mirror above it, she met her own reflection and thought, Calm down, for God's sake, you're giving too much away. Then her gaze shifted and refocused, and through the glass, she caught her mother's eye. Her mother was watching her with a look of unhappy embarrassment, but there was something else in her face. Frances was almost certain. That oddness, that doubt, that fear... Abruptly, she turned away from it, saying, Forgive me, Mrs. Playfair. She left the fireplace, crossed to the window, stood gazing out at the street. But they were all rattled now. After a minute or two of subdued chat between Mrs. Playfair and her mother, she heard sounds of movement, and turning back to the room, found them both on their feet. Mrs. Playfair was shrugging on her coat, fastening the chain of her fox collar. But don't trouble, she said quietly, when Frances moved forward to walk her to the door. I shall see myself out. Really, I'm sorry I came if it was only to upset you. Once she had gone, Frances returned to the sofa. Her mother remained standing, looking down at her as if she hardly recognized her. How could you talk to Mrs. Playfair like that about the war? Mrs. Playfair knows exactly what I think about the war. She called me a traitor to my country once, don't you remember? I don't know what's the matter with you. I don't know what's the matter with anything anymore. If your father could have foreseen... Oh, said Frances in her automatic way. Father foresaw nothing. That was his great talent. Yes, said her mother with surprising bitterness. And yours is... She struggled and didn't finish. Frances looked at her. Mine is what? But her mother turned her head and wouldn't answer. Frances waited, then gave it up. She tapped her thumb against her lips. The idea of the police being out there thinking all this, keeping their eye on Charlie, the idea of people saying these things about Lillian, it's grotesque. She got to her feet. I'll have to go and see her. I'll have to warn her. Her mother's head jerked back. No, Francis, let it alone. Let it alone. How can I do that? Aren't we involved enough? The police must know their own business. The police don't know anything. 
What do you mean? Francis took a step away from the sofa. I don't mean anything. I just... There was a rat-tat-tat at the front door that made her jump as if she had been hit. Christ, she said incautiously. What now? She hesitated, her heart thumping, but it was less suspenseful, she had discovered, simply to go out and answer than to stand there dithering. If it was a newspaper man, she would close the door in his face. It wasn't a newspaper man. It was a trim little military figure, a messenger boy, who handed over a telegram addressed to her. Her first idea was that something must have happened to Lillian. Lillian had broken down, told everything. Lillian was ill. Lillian was dead. She held the envelope without opening it, thinking in a bleak, 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 braced way. Is this it, then? Is this the moment when everything falls apart? Finally, she unglued the flap, drew out and unfolded the salmon-colored sheet. Saw news aghast. Please confirm all well. Waiting. See. The words made no sense until she saw the Clipstone Street stamp. She became aware that her mother had followed her out into the hall and was anxiously waiting. What is it? Who's written? Not more bad news. She came and took the paper from Francis and frowned. But who's the sender? I don't understand. Is it your cousin, Caroline? Frances opened her mouth to answer, groping for one of the old untruths. But the lie seemed such a weary one, suddenly. Weary and trifling, almost quaint. She said instead, it's from Christina. Her mother actually looked blank for a moment. Then her features tightened. Her. She handed the telegram back. Why on earth is she writing to you? She saw the case in the papers, she says. But how did she connect it with you? Have our names appeared now? She must have recognized the barbers. But I've spoken about them to her. Frances saw her mother absorbing that, felt the further rapid chilling of her manner. You've seen each other, then? A few times this year on my trips into town. She lives near Oxford Street with a friend. I thought you might have guessed it. Her mother's face twisted. No, of course I didn't. Why should I ever have thought of it? I don't know. I wasn't thinking, I suppose. It never occurred to me that you would be so untruthful after giving me your word that you wouldn't see her. Frances was astonished. I never gave you my word. As good as, then. No, not even so much as that. We never spoke about it. You never wanted to know. And it's down to me, isn't it? Whether I see my friends or not. Oh, what does it matter, after all? Well, evidently it does matter, since you've been going about this in a sneaking sort of way. Because I knew you, re- you would react like this. Her mother's tone grew even tighter. I don't wish to discuss it any further. You know my opinion of that young woman. Go and see her, if you must. I don't like your friendship with her. I don't understand it. I don't respect it. I never shall. But what I like and respect even less is your deceit. On top of everything that's happened, I don't know what to expect next. I feel I hardly know you at the moment. What else have you lied to me, lied to me about? There was nothing sinister to the question. Frances was almost sure. But it caught her off guard, and again she felt herself color in that scalding, incriminating way. And suddenly, it might have been Friday night again. She might have just come down the stairs with Leonard's body in her arms. She felt it all, more vivid than an ordinary memory, or even in dream. The tearing weight of him, the bulk of his padded head against her shoulder, even the clownish, clownish pressure of his bowler hat. Her heart had begun racing like an engine with no connection to the rest of her. She went to one of her father's chairs, leaned heavily against the back of it, and when, a moment later, she looked up, her mother was staring at her, 
And there it was, that fear, that suspicion, showing again in her expression. She returned the telegram to its envelope, doing it badly, stuffing it in. Please don't let's quarrel, she said with an effort. Whatever you're thinking about Christina, about, about anything, it isn't like that. It isn't worth it. Come back into the warm, will you? And she made a step past her mother to the drawing room. But with an odd, darting movement, her mother caught hold of her arm. Francis. She had the air of someone who must speak quickly or not at all. Francis, the night that Mr. Barber died, I came home with Mr. Lamb, and you, you didn't seem yourself. Tell me truthfully, has something happened? Francis tried to draw her arm away. No. Her mother kept hold of her. With Mrs. Barber, I mean. There hadn't been some sort of a quarrel between her and Mr. Barber? No. How could there have been? Leonard wasn't even here. We never saw him. She hasn't confided anything to you. Nothing about Mr. Wismuth or any other man. There's nothing you're keeping from the police. No. I want to believe you, Francis. But all your life you've had these, these queer enthusiasms. If I were to think, even for an instant, that the woman had involved you. There's nothing, mother. Do you promise me? Do you swear it on your honor? Francis wouldn't answer that. For a moment, they pulled against each other, both of them frightened as much by the oddness and tension of their pose as by anything that had or hadn't been admitted. Then Frances gave a twist to her wrist, and her arm came free, and in the process, her mother was tugged off balance and nearly stumbled. With Frances's help, she righted herself, but then she quickly moved away. They stood breathless, face to face on the black and white tiles. Frances said again in a steadying way, "'There's nothing. All right? Look, come back into the drawing room.' She held out her hand. But her mother wouldn't come. Her manner had changed, grown guarded. Still breathless, she answered, No, I, I shan't. My head is hurting. I think I'll lie down for an hour or so. And without meeting Frances's gaze, but keeping a wary eye on her, almost as if she were afraid of her, she crossed the hall to her bedroom and softly closed its door. Suddenly, weak at the knees, Frances tottered back to the stiff black chair. The thoughts, as she sat, came in a panicky rush. What ought she to do? Her mother knew. Her mother had guessed, or at any rate, she had guessed a part of it. But how long before she worked out more? How long before the whole thing knitted itself together like one of her wretched acrostics? And if she could see the design of it, and how soon would Inspector Kemp and Sergeant Heath and Patty's niece's boy and Mr. Samson the coroner, how soon would they? How soon? She couldn't frame the words to herself. She pressed her hands to her eyes. More than anything else, she wanted to see Lillian. But how would it look to her mother if she went dashing off to Walworth? And suppose something should happen while she was away from the house. Suppose Sergeant Heath should arrive, wanting to put together another of his mysterious bundles. Suppose he should speak to her mother while her mother was like this. She simply couldn't risk it. She felt an uneasiness, a terror, at the prospect of leaving things so unguarded. She could write to Lillian, of course. That thought made her twitch into life. She went upstairs to her bedroom, got out paper, pen, ink, started to put down in a hasty, intimate way everything that Mrs. Playfair had told her, and she had actually filled three-quarters of a page before she was struck by the recklessness of what she was doing. You need to be extra careful, Lily. Don't, for God's sake, or do or say anything that might give the police the impression. What was she thinking? 
In horror, she screwed the letter up, took it over to the empty grate, and held the flame of a match to it. The bare idea that she had come so close to doing something so incriminating made her begin to doubt everything she had done so far. She supposed herself in control of the whole affair. She didn't have a clue. Her own mother suspected her of having some part in a murder. All the confidence of the previous day was shattered. She rolled a cigarette, doing it so ineptly that half the tobacco fell to the floor. She smoked it at the window, peering out at the garden, the door in the wall, wondering how on earth she'd ever thought any of it would work. But she resolved, at least, to answer Christina's telegram. When the cigarette was finished, and as quickly as she could, she put on her outdoor things, and saying nothing to her mother, she went down the hill to the post office at Camberwell Green. Oh, Chrissy, so grim, but just coping. See soon. Promise love. The girl at the counter looked at her, as though she thought her slightly mad. Perhaps I have gone mad, she said to herself. Leaving the building, she stood gazing towards Walworth, utterly unable to decide whether or not to press on to Mr. Viney's shop. The desire to see Lillian was like a craving, like the craving she imagined came after the taking of a drug. But she thought of the reception she'd be bound to get, the surprising commotion of it. Would there even be anywhere for the two of them to be alone together? And what did she have to tell Lillian in any case? It was Charlie who was most in danger. Lillian might say that they ought to warn him, but they couldn't do that without giving themselves away. Wouldn't she simply make Lillian more frightened, more likely to let something slip? And even in the 20 or so minutes that she had been away from the house, she had started to worry about what might be happening there in her absence. She turned her back on Walworth and hurried up the hill, with every step growing more convinced that she would find the place swarming with policemen. The house was just as she had left it. Her mother was still in her room. She didn't emerge until after seven, when Frances tapped meekly at her door to say that dinner was ready. They passed a strained evening together, Mrs. Ray keeping to her chair with a blanket over her knees and answering any remark of Frances's with a vagueness, a doubt, a delay. Frances lay wide awake in bed that night, knowing that her mother was downstairs lying wide awake too, thinking of the tick, tick of her mother's mind as it pieced things together. But nothing was said the following morning. Her mother was pale, calm, and distant. Frances went out as soon as she could for the early papers, fully expecting to see some change in the reporting of the case. There was no mention anywhere, however, of the spooning couple. The police were pressing on with their manhunt and had evidently widened their search. They were said to be interviewing people as far away as Dulwich. But Charlie's name did not appear in any of the columns, and realizing that, she began to recover some of her confidence. How strong, after all, was the case against him? It was all speculation, surely. There was no evidence to support it. And even if the police were to go so far as to arrest him, well, she thought determinedly, arresting someone wasn't the same as charging them. He'd simply have to come clean, then, about what he'd been up to on Friday night. If he was at some brothel or drug, drug den, or whatever the hell he'd been doing, he'd surely sooner admit that than be charged with his best friend's murder. As for the timings of it all, it couldn't matter what time when it was killed. There was still absolutely nothing to suggest that he had been killed in the house, nothing to link his death with Lillian or with her. After a silent lunch, her mother announced quietly that she was going out for an hour or two. Frances looked at her and felt herself whiten. She imagined that she had made up her mind to speak to the police. But it was some charity business, her mother said as she put on her coat, a set of minutes that had to be delivered to one of her committees. No, Frances was kind to offer, but she was happy to take them herself. 
She wanted to call into church. Her eyelids fluttered as she spoke. She wanted to call into church on her way home. Perhaps then she planned to confide not in the police, but in the vicar. Frances watched her go with a feeling of doom. Suppose Mr. Garnish were to talk? She had to think it through to be ready. But she had the house to herself. That was an unexpected gift. This was the first time since Leonard's death that she had been alone in it. She had to make the most of the next two hours. She ought to look for signs, for evidence. She felt better as soon as she started. Upstairs in a sitting room, the bloodstains were as visible as ever, but the carpet she saw now had other marks on it, streaks of dirt and spots of ink, something that might have been a splash of tea. There was no reason for the eye to travel to one stain over another. It was the same with the ashtray. The scorch on the base meant nothing, and though she could hide it away, get it out of the house, wouldn't that simply draw attention to it? It was less incriminating to leave it right where it was. The hearth was brimming over with a new mess from Sunday's fires. That was good, but the ash pail was still there, with those scraps of jingham and lumps of clinker in it, the latter looking like the sort of greasy black nuggets one might find at the bottom of a roasting dish. But those, at least, she could take care of. She carefully carried the pail downstairs, put on an apron and galoshes, then picked her way down the muddy garden to the ash heap. She didn't rush the job. She took her time as she stirred the clinker into the slurry, not caring if a neighbor should chance to look out and see her, for, after all, emptying ash pails was the sort of chore she did every day. Even when she spotted an unburned scrap of yellow fabric in the gray, her nerve remained strong. She fetched a spade, made a cut in the earth at the side of a rosemary bush, pushed a yellow fragment into it, and sealed up the ground. Next, she got a dustpan and brush, and then a bucket of soapy water, and went over the treads of the stairs, the floor of the hall, the passage, the kitchen, the route that she and Lillian had taken with Leonard's body. Again, she worked slowly and methodically, doing far more than she needed to, moving the pieces of hall furniture out of their places, even hauling the oak coat stand away from the wall in order to get behind and beneath it. Near the threshold of the kitchen, she found a single rusty splash that she thought had probably come from Lillian rather than from Leonard, and in the shadowiest corner of the passage, she discovered the neat half of a black button that might just possibly have got tugged from one of Leonard's cuffs as she had dragged him down the stairs. But the splash was easily wiped away, and the button she carried out to the kitchen stove along with the rest of the contents of the dustpan. She hesitated about throwing it in, though, if the police should ever take it into their heads to go through the ashes. In the end, remembering how she had buried the scrap of material, she pushed a button into the earth of the potted aspidistra that, for as long as she could remember, had sat on the largest of the hall tables beside the brass dinner gong. The police would never look there, surely. And she had just moved away from it, was just, almost complacently, picking the earth from beneath her fingernail when she heard the clang of the garden gate, followed by unhurried footsteps across the front garden. The footsteps made their way, grittily, into the porch. There was a charged little silence, and then the knocker was lifted and dropped. Don't answer it, she told herself. She held her breath and did nothing. The knock came again. She couldn't leave it. It might be news of Lillian. She went across, opened the door, and found herself face to face with Inspector Kemp. He lifted his hat. Good afternoon, Miss Ray. Good afternoon, Inspector. Her voice had no scrap of welcome in it. He took in her apron, her bare lower arms, the bits of furniture standing about behind her at random angles on the floor, and said, Ah, I'm afraid I'm disturbing you. She tried to speak with more life. It doesn't matter, but have you come to see Mrs. Barber? She isn't here. 
I thought you knew that. Yes, I do. No, it isn't Mrs. Barber I like to speak to. He paused fractionally. It's you. Do you have a few minutes? She would rather have done almost anything than let him into the house. But in silence, she moved back. He stepped gingerly onto the still wet tiles, giving a grimace of apology for the dirt on his shoes. Pulling off her apron, tugging down her cuffs a little, she led him into the drawing room. He unbuttoned his overcoat as he sat, then drew out his notebook from an inside pocket. Eyeing the book warily, she said, Have you brought news? Is that why you're here? Well, he said, thumbing his way through the small pages. Yes and no. We're no closer to an arrest, I'm sorry to say, but we expect to be very soon. There's been a development, you see, that we think is significant. She swallowed. Oh, yes? Yes, we've been keeping the matter quiet for the sake of the inquiry, but the newspapers have just got wind of it, so it won't be secret for long. He looked up. Two possible witnesses from the night of the murder. And he proceeded to tell her everything she'd heard already from Mrs. Playfair about the man and the girl and the scuffling in the lane. She struggled at first to arrange her features, wanting to hit just the right balance between surprise and concern. But the longer he went on, the calmer she grew. If this was all he'd come for. Naturally, he finished. The biggest puzzle for us now is Mr. Wismuth's statement. He's quite adamant that he last saw Mr. Barber at Blackfriars at ten, but... Yes, she said helpfully. I see how that places you. And to tell you the truth, there are one or two other things about his story that make us not quite satisfied with it. She paused at that, as of just getting the point. But you surely don't suspect Mr. Wismuth of having anything to do with the murder. Well, we're keeping an open mind. But Mr. Wismuth, no, it couldn't possibly have been him. He looked interested. You don't think so? I remember that you said that. However, he returned to his book. It's really Mr. and Mrs. Barber that I like to talk about today. You won't mind if I make a few notes. Again, she eyed the little book. No, I don't mind. What is it you like to know? He brought out a pencil. Oh, just general things about the couple and their routines. How well would you say did you and your mother know them? She pretended to think it over. Not very well, I suppose. You didn't tend to spend time with them? Our habits were rather different. My mother sometimes chatted with Mr. Barber. Your mother got along all right with him? Yes. How about you? Did you get along with him? Yes, I suppose so. Ever see him much on his own? No, never. Not even casually, about the house. Well, of course, on the stairs and places like that. And Mrs. Barber, you saw more of her, I suppose. She nodded. A little more. At parties and so on. That took her by surprise. When she didn't answer, he went on. I understand you accompanied Mrs. Barber to the party given by her sister in July, the night, of course, that Mr. Barber was first assaulted. You didn't mention that, Miss Ray, when we talked about it at the police station. She made her voice very level. I didn't. It was rather hard to concentrate that day. And yet the party seems, by all accounts, to have been a memorable one. I've spoken to several of the other guests. They tell me that Mrs. Barber was, let's say, making the most of her husband's absence, taking rather a lot to drink, and so on, dancing with a number of men. Now she knew what he was getting at, why he had come. Quite steadily, she said. Mrs. Barber danced with her cousins, as far as I recall. He consulted his book. 
James Daly, Patrick Daly, Thomas Lynch. I'm afraid I don't know their names. But Mrs. Barber was dancing pretty freely with them. It was a family party. Mrs. Barber danced with several people. She danced with me, as it happens. She did. He said it in that bland way of his. That was somehow like the lenses of his spectacles, making his gaze more penetrating, even while appearing to screen it. She went on after a second. All I mean is, the dancing was harmless. You don't recall there being anyone, a cousin or some other man, with whom Mrs. Barber seemed on particularly friendly terms? No, I don't. No one who seemed especially to admire her? Just cast your mind back for me, would you? But her mind had gone back already. She was remembering watching Lillian from the sofa. She was remembering standing with her at the gramophone, the space between them tugging itself closed. She shook her head. No. And you were with her all evening. You left the party together. No one else traveled with you. You weren't aware before you left of Mrs. Barber making any sort of arrangement with any other guest. I ask because the people I've spoken to, they all say there was something about Mrs. Barber that night. Nobody can quite put a finger on it, but just something. She had taken a great deal of trouble over her costume, apparently. You didn't notice anything. No. Could you describe Mrs. Barber's temperament? Her temperament? Her likes and dislikes, and so on. I've been given the impression that she's rather a romancer, rather dreamy, rather discontented. It seems to have been well known among her friends and family that she wasn't quite happy in her married life. Well, that's true of half the wives of England, isn't it? He gave a faint smile. Is it? I shall have to ask mine. You knew yourself that she was unhappy, then. She hesitated. What do you mean? It doesn't surprise you to hear of it. I never thought much about it. She never confided in you. She seemed rather to cling to you, I thought, on Saturday at the police station. Well, she just had to view her husband's body. She'd have clung to anyone in, anyone sympathetic, I imagine. There haven't been callers to the house. No notes, no letters. You'd asked me that once before. Yes, but as you've said, it was hard to concentrate then. Nothing sprung to mind since we last spoke. The day of the murder, for example. You and your mother both mentioned in your statement that you heard the sounds of Mrs. Barber doing some spring cleaning, moving boxes, emptying drawers. I keep thinking about that, Miss Ray. It seems to me an odd thing for Mrs. Barber to have been doing, given what we now know about her condition at the time. She couldn't have been packing things up, putting clothes and so on together for some sort of trip. Francis looked at him. Some sort of trip? A hasty departure, a flight of some kind. She was appalled. No, not at all. You seem very certain. I am certain. Did you know that Mr. Barber's life was insured with his wife as sole beneficiary? The question was like a wire drawn tight at ankle level. It brought her down with a, with a bump. Leonard's life insured? Such a thing had never occurred to her. She desperately tried to think through the implications of it, but she couldn't think anything at all with the inspector watching her. She moistened her dry lips. No, I didn't know that. He nodded. Sergeant Heath came across the paperwork when he was going through Mr. Barber's things. The company has confirmed it. The policy was opened when Mr. Barber was first married, but it was extended in July this year, not long after the night of that party, as a matter of fact. Altogether, Mr. Barber's life was insured for 500 pounds. 500 pounds? 
The figure took her aback. After another awkward pause, she said, Well, insurance was Mr. Barber's business. That's true. It sounds to me as though you're going about picking on any detail that suits you, jumping to all sorts of wild conclusions. But she mustn't lose her head. She lost it yesterday. The inspector watched her, waiting for more. But when she didn't go on, he closed his book and said in a comfortable tone, Well, I dare say you're right. As I think I've said before, I have to consider every eventuality. It wouldn't be just to the murdered man if I didn't. You'll keep my questions in mind, I hope, and let me know of anything that occurs to you. It isn't pleasant, I know, especially for respectable people like you and your mother. But unfortunately, even the most respectable of people sometimes find themselves drawn into unpleasant situations. He got to his feet. I'd be obliged, of course, if you didn't mention our conversation to Mrs. Barber. I imagine you're in contact with her? Was this another tripwire? She said as she rose. I haven't seen Mrs. Barber since the inquest. You haven't? I mean to call in on her later today. I want to let her know, among other things, that we've heard back from the police laboratory. We were quite right about those hairs on Mr. Barber's overcoat. Some are very clearly Mrs. Barber's. Some, he paused, to tuck away the notebook, his eyes on hers. Some are a good match with yours. One is definitely Mr. Wismuth's. As for the others, they're unaccounted for. They may take us nowhere, but you never know. They might come in useful later on. He was almost chummy now. He buttoned up his overcoat with a remark about the unseasonal chillness of the day. She took him back out to the hall, and seeing the trail of muddy splodges his shoes had left on the drying floor, he gave another grimace of apology. I'm afraid I've made more housework for you. She crossed the tiles. It doesn't matter. There's always housework here. And always done at odd hours, it seems. You take care of it all yourself. I notice that you keep no servant. Yes, I do it all. We lost our servants in the war. I'm used to it now. She wanted simply to get rid of him. She had her hand on the latch of the door. But, turning, she saw that his step had slowed. He was gazing around, at the stairs, at the bits of furniture. He seemed struck by the heavy-looking coat stand that she had pulled out of its place. His eyes traveled from that to Frances herself, to her heelless shoes, her hips and shoulders, her lifted arm, her bare, strong wrists. At last, he looked into her face with a funny half-smile. You're an interesting young woman, Miss Ray, if you don't mind my saying so. You've a colorful past, I gather. She left the latch unturned. What do you mean? Oh, all sorts of things come up in our inquiries, odd details from old police files. We like to know if any of our witnesses has any sort of a criminal record. I must admit, when I ordered a check on your name, I did it as a mere formality. But it seems my colleagues over at A Division had some dealings with you a few years ago. She realized that he was referring to that ridiculous occasion during the war, the throne shoes, the night in the police cell. She felt herself blush. Oh, that. I, I did that, you know, mainly to annoy my father. And did it work? Yes, very well. He was smiling broadly now. Her own expression felt as though it had been nailed to her face. She drew open the door and, still in that friendly way, his spectacles flashing as the watery sunlight caught them, he fitted on his hat and moved past her. She waited until he had stepped from the porch, then quietly closed the door behind him. And then she leaned against it in a sickening combination of relief at being rid of him and alarm at what he had revealed to her. It was all so much worse than she'd been supposing. He didn't simply suspect Charlie. That much was obvious. Perhaps he didn't even really suspect Charlie at all. 
but he'd worked out that there was a lover involved. All those questions about the party, dancing, other men. How long before that nose of his led him away from them to her? But maybe he was on her trail already. She kept thinking back to the way in which he had told her about that insurance policy. He had done it in the same deliberate manner in which he'd first mentioned murder to Lillian, as if to get a reaction from her, as if to observe her response. He knew she was hiding something, then. But just what did he suspect her of concealing? Why had he mentioned those hairs had been found on Leonard's coat? And why bring up her colorful past in that apparently casual way? She didn't know what to think. The whole conversation seemed to her to have been a series of tests. She had no idea whether she had passed or failed them. She had to see Lillian. She had to see Lillian. She had put off going to her after Mrs. Playfair's visit, but she had to go to her now. She had to do it before he did. She went quickly around the hall, shoving the furniture back into place. Then she dashed up to her bedroom for her shoes, coat, and hat. Thank God her mother wasn't here. She came racing back out of the room, the carpet slithering under her feet. She nearly slipped on her way down the stairs, and after that, she slowed her pace, standing at the mirror in the hall to put herself tidy, calm herself down. As she let herself out of the house, she grew cautious again, suddenly fearful that Inspector Kent might still be somewhere on the street. Suppose he had lingered to take more notes, to peer at the gutters or the gardens? But she looked, clean, clean, she looked keenly all around as she had started down the hill, and there was no sign of him. A nursemaid was pushing a baby carriage. A delivery boy was going by on a bicycle, whistling. A man in a buckled gray Macintosh was at the bend of the road, lighting a cigarette, turning away out of the breeze to strike his match and cup the flame as Francis went past him. None of them paid any attention to her. She put up the collar of her coat and quickened her pace. But it was Wednesday, early closing day. At the bottom of the hill, the road was noisy with, tra with traffic streaming in and out of town, but the pavement had a thinned-out, Sundayish feel, and she felt conspicuous hurrying along it, especially once the shops had been slightly humbler, as they did almost as soon as she'd broken away from Camberwell. It occurred to her to take a bus or a tram, but whenever she paused at a stop, she managed to time it badly. She waited in vain at the stop itself, then saw buses and trams go sailing past her the moment she'd moved on. It seemed simpler to keep walking. It wasn't so far, in any case. A little over half an hour after she'd left home, she reached the start of the Walworth Road. Mr. Viney's shop was a few hundred yards along it, a modest Victorian front still with its mirrored 70s lettering, one half of its display given over to collars, to masculine vests and pants, the other half festooned with stockings and elastic corsets. The blind on the door was down, and there was no sign of life behind it, but to the left of the window was another door, an ordinary street door, painted in matching chocolate gloss. This led, Francis supposed, to the rooms above. She put her finger to the bell push and waited. When nothing happened, she pressed again. The door was yanked open at last by a stout, freckled girl of, of about fifteen. Was she one of Lillian's cousins? She coolly looked Francis up and down. Yes? What is it? Frances explained why she had come, that she hoped to speak to Mrs. Barber. But at that, the girl's manner cooled even further. She's not seeing nobody from the papers. No, I'm not from the papers. I'm Miss Ray, her friend, from Champion Hill. Well, I don't know nothing about that. I'm sure Mrs. Barber will be glad to see me. Well, it's rather urgent. The girl spoke grudgingly. Well, all right. But if you ain't who you say you are, mind, there'll be trouble. Still hostile, she moved back, opening the door fully, 
doing her best to flatten her bulky figure against the wall. Stepping forward, Frances found herself in a long long brown passage leading to a set of narrow stairs. Somewhere up above, a small dog was madly barking, and there seemed nowhere to to save, nowhere to go, save closer to the sound. Once the door was closed, however, the passage was dark, lighted only by a dusty transom. She paused, and the girl pushed past her to go ahead of her up the staircase. As they reached a minuscule half-landing, and the inner door was opened, and a Jack Russell came scrabbling out. It was followed by a pink-faced Mrs. Viney, peering button-eyed into the gloom. When she recognized Frances, her eyes grew even rounder. "'Oh, Miss Ray, is it you? What must you think of us, keeping you out in the street like that? Here, Monty. Oh, isn't he a villain?' The dog was jumping up and barking. Catch hold of him, Lydia, before he knocks poor Miss Ray down the stairs. This is Lydia, Miss Ray, who lives next door to us and who's been helping us out while Lou's been here. We've had that many callers, you see. We are sick to death of them. But Lydia, well, she don't take no nonsense from no one. But oh, to think of it's being you and me and my penny coming off them drafty old stairs. Monty, be quiet. Frances moved forward as best as she could around the demented dog and, following Mrs. Viney, emerged in the stuffy kitchen. She took in the immense black range in the chimney breast, the laundry dangling from the rack above it, the coconut mat on the floor, the dresser shelves crammed with blue china, all of it meaner and more old-fashioned than she had been expecting, so that for a moment, disconcerted, she bent to the leaping dog, trying to pat and calm it. It kept twisting its jaws to her hands. When she straightened up, Lillian was there, just coming in through a second doorway. She was dressed in what must have been some outfit of Varys, an artificial silk frock and a muted floral pattern, with her hair pulled up in a pair of combs. She looked even less like herself than she had at the inquest. Her face had lost its horrible doughiness, however, and had more color to it, though when she met Frances's gaze, some of the color drained away. She must have seen in her expression that something had happened. She came forward to catch hold of the dog, lifting it up and sitting it in her arms. Drawing her chin away from its muzzle, she said, "'Is everything all right?' "'No,' answered Frances, with her eyes, her breath, her skin. "'Yes,' she said aloud. "'I happen to be passing, and, well, I thought I'd call in. "'You wouldn't rather be left alone?' "'Lily looked around, troubled. "'No, I, no, it's nice to see you, but there isn't anywhere to take you. "'Vera and Violet are upstairs. "'Violet's off school. She's been sick all morning. "'And, no,' cried her mother.' You don't want to take Miss Ray up there. She's come all this way. She wants a proper chair to sit in. Take her through to the parlor. Your stepdad won't mind. He'll be glad to meet her. He's heard that much about her. You take her through. Go on. And me and Lydia would make some tea. There was clearly nothing else for it. Gazing at Frances in a sort of forlorn frustration, Lillian led her out of the kitchen into a dingy little parlor, over-furnished and over-hot, where they found a lean, bodding figure with a toothbrush mustache, Mr. Viney. He had heard them coming and was, and was already up on his feet. He greeted Francis with the flustered, faintly resentful air of a man who'd hastily pulled on his jacket or shoved in his teeth. "'You're here about this business of Lillian's, I suppose,' he asked sourly. "'Have the newspapers been pestering you. They've been plaguing the life out of us. Parasites, I call them. Suck your blood, the whole lot of them.' He grumbled on in a practiced way until Mrs. Viney and Lydia brought in the tea. He had his in a special cup, slightly larger than the others.' There was a bit of fussing with the dog, who was made to shake hands before being allowed a biscuit. Mrs. Viney asked after Frances's mother. They discussed the preparations for the funeral, the inspector's recent visit, the fact that no more progress seemed to have been made with the case. 
The talk went on and on, Francis sitting tensely the whole time, gazing across the room at Lillian, seeing the tension in her pose, too. It wasn't until Vera had appeared, shuffling down from some upstairs room to say that Violet had left off being sick and it was asking for a bit of bread and butter, but wanted her nan to take it up. It wasn't until then, in the upheaval that followed, with the dog barking again, wriggling away like a greased pig every time someone tried to catch hold of it, that she and Lillian could snatch a few minutes together, alone. I just need to talk to Francis for a bit about some things at the house, Lillian told her mother, once Francis had risen and said her goodbyes. And before Mrs. Viney could throw in some kind word to prevent it, they had headed down the narrow stairs to the badly lighted passage. Behind them, the dog was still yapping its head off. On the other side of the street door, the whole of the Walworth Road seemed to be thundering by. Francis thought of all they had to say, all they had to discuss and to plan, with only ever hurried, harried moments like this in which to do it, and felt a touch of despair. Lillian said, What is it? Something's happened, hasn't it? She nodded. But I don't know how bad it is. I just don't know what to think. And quickly, quietly, she told Lillian everything. The conversation with Mrs. Playfair, the scene with her mother to which it had led, the visit from the inspector. Lillian grew pale again as she listened. By the time Frances had finished, she had reached for the newel post at the bottom of the stairs, leaning against it as if she might faint. Oh, Frances, it's the end. If your mother's guessed, she hasn't guessed all of it. And those people in the lane! They didn't see anything. Even the inspector admitted that. But why did he tell you about them at all? Why would he tell you so much? Yes, that's the frightening part. He was trying to startle me into confessing something. Something about you and Charlie, or about you and other men. Not not about you and me? I don't know. No, I don't believe it. But he knows I was at Netta's party with you, and that I pretended I wasn't. I wish to God I'd never done that. And I wish I'd never thought to say you were spring cleaning on the day Leonard died. There's no going about from that now. It's in all our statements. Everything he's turning up looking so damaging. That, that insurance policy. She must have sounded odd as she said it. Lillian looked at her in a new way. But that's nothing. All the married men at the Pearl have them. To get them as a part of their job. 500 pounds. It seems such a lot. But I've forgotten all about it. Had you? Yes. Or... She shook her head, confused. I don't know. Len used to make jokes about it, I suppose. You're not thinking... No, said Frances quickly. Of course not. She wouldn't allow the thought at all. I'm just trying to look at it as he'll look at it. At the mention of the inspector, Lillian sank onto the lowest step of the staircase. Oh, he frightens me to death. I knew he was thinking things about Charlie and me. I guessed it from all the questions he asked me on Monday night. If only Charlie would tell the truth. He'll have to now, won't he? If that couple were really in the lane. But then if he does... Oh, Francis, I don't know what's going to happen next. Every time a doorbell goes, I think it's the police. But if it's Charlie, they're watching. Betty was here yesterday. I could hardly look her in the eye. I can't look anyone in the eye except you. They won't arrest him or anything, will they? Francis squatted down beside her. I don't know. I think they might. She looked terrified. Oh, don't say that. It's getting worse and worse. First you're caught up in it. Now him. And all from that stupid, stupid moment. It was clear what she was remembering. The swing of the ashtray. The crooked back crack. Leonard's heavy collapse to the floor. Upstairs there were voices in the kitchen. The scrabble of the dog's claws on the, the lino. 
She seemed not to hear them. Instead, she hung her head and spoke levelly and wretchedly. You wanted to go for a doctor, didn't you? I should have let you. I know it now. Whatever might have happened, it couldn't have been worse than all this. I've started to think... She couldn't say it. Frances stared at her. What? I've started to wonder whether I shouldn't just tell the police everything. What? I'd say I did it all by myself, that you didn't know anything about it. Oh, Lillian, you mustn't. We've left it too long. They'd never believe you. But it's the truth. They'd have to believe me. Believe that you carried him, down the stairs, up the garden to the lane, all without my knowing. Lillian's mouth had begun to tremble. Well, I can't think of what to do. I've caught you into all this. Don't think about me. You've done so much. You've done it all. You've been brave, too. You just have to be brave for a little longer. I don't know if I can be. It's more like a nightmare than ever. I know it feels that way, said Frances. But there's no evidence against anyone. They can't arrest people with no evidence. They can't. But her voice was wavering now. Her last bit of confidence seemed to be melting away. Lillian looked at her, then caught hold of her hands. Oh, don't be frightened, too. You mustn't be frightened, too. If I know you're frightened, I'll die. She was wringing Frances's fingers. That panic was back, that dark electricity. They hung on to one another, but might have been gripping each other's hands over some great gulf, so horribly fused yet separated were they by their terror. As it had once or twice before, the panic ran through them, then burned itself out. Lillian drew free and put her hand in her hand, put her head in her hands. I wish I could make it be different, she said. I wish I could take it all back. I wish, I wish, she stopped, exhausted. But wishing's no good. It never was, was it? Frances put an arm around her, kissed the side of her pale face. Just be careful when the inspector comes. Don't let him catch you out. We've come so far. We can keep going. I know we can. But you won't think again about, about what you said, telling the truth. You won't think of it. Lillian hesitated, then shook her head. Not if you don't think I ought to. They hauled themselves upright, stood close for a minute, and kissed with dry, clumsy mouths before they parted. Out on the pavement, Frances blinked against the daylight. A man was standing at the window of the shop, looking over the display, and in the blindness of the moment, she just avoided colliding with him. She caught his eye in a dusty glass, mumbled an apology, and moved on. But after a second or two, she looked back, to see him stepping rapidly away in the opposite direction. He was dressed in a buckled gray Macintosh, she realized now. Was he the man she had passed earlier, on her way down the hill? She wasn't sure, but the thought set her panicking again. It hadn't occurred to her before, but wasn't it possible that Inspector Kemp had put men to watch the house, men to follow her when she left it? Perhaps they'd been doing it all week. How else, after all, would he have known to find her on her own that own today? And she had done just what he'd wanted her to do, gone rushing off to Lillian, gone to Lillian to get to her first, because he had taken care to let her know that he would be coming here later himself. She headed home feeling sick, feeling trapped and exposed, now and then as she crossed the road, furtively turning her head to glance back over her shoulder. But there was no further sign of the man in the Macintosh.